Welcome to A Brief History of Power. We are going to clean up some stuff that is in the mailbag and has been there for a long time. It's always fun, <laughs> but I, I, need to, I need to catch up. You can always send your questions in, but I'm not going to guarantee that we're going to answer them within two or three months. <laughs> there, there are so many, um, and you guys have such wide and varied and interesting interests. So this show is going to be all over the place for that reason. We'll talk about energy and about education and about foreign policy. So let's get into it. The first question and the last question I'm going to read because they're pretty concise. The middle one about education, two long emails from the same person. So if you're listening, you you know who you are, but I'm not going to read those questions because they're too long. I'll just summarize them and then begin to answer them. Here's the first question about energy. It says, have you ever looked into the hypothesis of resource depletion as described in John Michael Greer's The Long Descent? Basically, the hypothesis states that the industrial civilization of the 19th century through today was due to the availability of free energy sources through fossil fuels. As the cost of those increase, the society built on them will necessarily have to simplify. This is what we are seeing in real time. I have, in fact, heard of that, and I've read a couple things by John Michael Greer, and I want to respond to his premise, and that will also compose the beginning of my answer, is that the premise of resource depletion, and Greer has his own terms for these things, but basically, the term that isn't unique to him, with which you might be familiar, is the concept of peak oil. Now, that's one subset of so-called fossil fuels. But that's the basic idea that we reach a certain apex of production and therefore of our capacity to use petroleum or whatever other fuel or resource, coal, whatever else you want to think of. And that once we reach that apex, we're obviously going down after that in what those energy sources can do for us. So as we go down, we're going to go down in a way that Greer calls catabolic collapse. He calls on the one hand the idea that we will not collapse at all, a myth, and also that we that we will collapse and will collapse in sort of a, a sudden or apocalyptic way, also a myth, that instead we will have a slow, long decline, and that what you need to do, therefore, in view of this basic problem for our form of civilization which obviously relies on finding such fuels, finding um, not only what keeps us warm, but also what, what keeps us moving. And then all of the technologies dependent on those things for their incredible power. And that's something we'll talk about in not show and not in, not in questions, but in, you know, independent shows later on uh, this year that as that declines, we need to plan to handle that decline in essentially, if you look at it as a line, stair-step fashion, we're going to plateau and then go down and then plateau and go down a little more and then plateau for a while and then go down a little bit more. Because of that, you have to, Greer sums it up sort of as by way of a quip as collapse now and avoid the rush. <laughs> so, so basically you learn to do things in a lower tech way to handle the fact that this stuff is all going away in a slow way. That's why the descent is long. And he identifies 
really the the other ills of our civilization so not talking about technology or energy use but talking about how those changes in energy availability and also therefore usage and also technological decline are tied to and will be reflected by all kinds of other maladies people are at war with each other inside formerly prosperous places people have declining educational standards all kinds of things that you can kind of see us going down and down and down so i'm tr- that's that's kind of the description of of where greer is there's two issues that i have with that one of them is logical or philosophical and the and the other one is historical okay so my my logical disagreement with with greer is the idea that fossil fuels are as limited and our capacity to use them is as limited as he describes and the reason that i disagree with him about that is that i do not agree with let's say mainstream green thinking about either the origin of fossil fuels being myself a a, a young earth creationist i also therefore don't believe that i don't i don't i can't accept the premise that we are just going to run out of them in any kind of imminent way that would be traceable and observable by us in anything like real time and the theory of peak oil relies obviously on mainstream ideas about geology and where petroleum and and coal and natural gas come from and they rely therefore on the idea that these are not actually being provided in order to be used now even apart from that let's say that you totally disagree with what i just said and you believe that there's a very finite amount and it's running down you also have to assume that no one's going to get better at using it that it's going to be wasted in the same way or whatever refined with all kinds of loss in the process of refining just like whatever 50 years ago 100 years ago so i have a logical disagreement with greer a a pre-existent you know hypothetical i have a disagreement about his presumptions that we are going to just run out of these resources and even the phrase fossil fuels reflects this it obviously assumes a certain thing about earth's geological history it also fossil there functions adjectivally right it describes the kind of fuel and that is supposed to be contrasted with renewable fuels such as hydroelectric power such as wind such as solar the issue there is that our means of producing industrially usable amounts of hydro of solar and of wind are all dependent on our use of what are called fossil fuels (laughs) right so I think the term fossil fuels, and I haven't looked into this, but I think the term fossil fuels is not only there to reinforce a certain understanding about Earth's geological history. It's very old. Here's how all of this formed. So you're going to use it up because we're not getting fossils being produced in that way right away in amounts sufficient to come back and, and, and replace what you're using to power your truck or whatever. There's that assumption. There's also the assumption that fossil fuels are implicitly contrasted with renewable fuels and that therefore we have to move to renewable energy resources because we just can't keep this up so i 
disagree with that premise. Therefore, I have this just basic logical disagreement about the problem, right? About the problem. So there's that. The historical disagreement is that our decline, if we can track some kind of decline. So if you say in 1886, our most people in what we would now call, now call a, a developed country, are they optimistic about life? Are they producing new things? Are they whatever? I don't, I don't really see our decline, also our decline in our capacity to use or to invent, okay, given the resources that we have. I, I, don't, I don't see that as some sort of economic, systemic, or environmental crisis. I see it as spiritual suicide since that time. So there has been literal civilizational suicide in just the sheer numbers of people who died in the various enormous conflicts of the 20th century, for example, both world wars, the Russian revolution, the Chinese revolution or, or civil war, depending on how you want to look at it. Just the enormous numbers of people who have not only been killed, but sacrificed themselves in the cause of Germany's right to invade Belgium or Belgium's right to remain neutral or whatever. And that what we face, that energy is not, that we are not materialistically determined by some estimate, whether from the limits of growth in the early 70s, which is the, the Club of Rome's report that Greer frequently cites and is frequently cited in, in various parts of, let's say, the, the green internet, which is, which is not uniformly, you might say, left-wing any more than Greer himself is. So this is not some kind of purely political or partisan issue. But if you want to say that, okay, well, what's wrong with us and, and what we're capable of and, and what we're no longer capable of or inexorable decline that is definitely coming, but, but good news, it's coming slowly enough that you can adjust over time and you can you know, get a horse over time. You know, or or a Tesla. You know, depending on your solution here. The issue there is that I I think it fails to understand, and I I want to say Greer is something like a something like a druid, maybe some sort of British Isles origin. I think he's from the Pacific Northwest himself, but British Isles origin version of of modern paganism. I think that he fails to see that the reason that we are sick also in how we produce things or, or we fail to, how we, we fail to invent. We're great at innovating for, for immediate consumer purposes, which, which has an immediate commercial purpose rather than for any kind of long-term benefit in the way that you see very distinctively in the late 19th and early 20th century that, that the West is innovating technologically. That our issue is really a, a spiritual malaise, a sense of purposelessness, a sense that we cannot or or dare not go on this idea of suicide is civilizational suicide is really easy to see where nations are basically agreeing to tie their own hands behind their back industrially in the name of the climate right or in the name of the environment that what is happening is that people are so lacking in confidence about the validity of their own existence Okay, whether individually, right, our suicide rate is really high, our mental health is very, very poor, almost as a rule, almost person to person, 
but that also on a collective level, countries cannot admit that the way that they live is at all legitimate, that it's legitimate for Germany to use as much energy as it does need to produce the things that it does produce, and that all of this has to be cut down. You can see real effects of that, right? And, and those will only increase as policing of climate or climate effects or assurance that carbon offsets have actually been purchased or that carbon taxes have been paid, that all of that is designed basically to kill us, to strangle us gradually, specifically industrially, right? But on a spiritual level, that's all just simply suicidal behavior, that, that you're not legitimate, you don't deserve to exist, you shouldn't be here, you shouldn't be here in anything like the way that you are, and that what you need to return to is essentially a 16th to 17th century level of technological usage, which, you know, I don't, I don't know what, what you know, or what John Michael Greer knows about the Amish, but the Amish aren't even doing that, <laughs> right? They don't even live that way. So even the tools that they use in farming are, are produced with a level of precision and reproducibility that you really only get in the 19th century with the growth of incredibly both powerful and precise machine tools. So I, I, I don't agree with the premise. I also don't agree that the problem or the decline, and we can see decline, we can see industrial decline, we can see all kinds of decline, that the decline is based on some kind of primarily material issue in the same way that if climate change if if anthropogenic man caused anthropogenic climate change is real that you know i just have to deal with what the climate now is in oklahoma or whatever as opposed to what it was 100 years ago and you, when people are speaking in this prophetic way about this is what the future is going to be like you always want to check what their opinion of the past is and there's kind of no way that some you know, literally pagan guy from the Pacific Northwest understands what has been lost because in 1886, he would have been a complete outlier. I mean, does he have children? What was the birth rate in 1886? You know, ob obviously the modern world looks normal enough to him that he can't see what has been lost very clearly, right? So he has to premise it on something else other than here is a civilization permeated by Christianity, not sinless or something, but permeated by Christianity with plenty of new people every year, except in 1886, except in France, that will within 20 to 30 years have killed millions and millions and millions of their own young men. That is something that people just kind of take for granted and they look past it. They need to look through it in order to understand how we got here and therefore what the problem is. And the problem is that we have tried to live without God individually and collectively, and you can't do that. And when you try to live without him, everything else will and does go haywire. Okay. And this is, you can see this over and over and over and over again because such civilizations have the combination of pride and despair that individuals do when they try to live without God. And that's where we are. We have pride and we have despair. And of course, we're not going to keep going. We're certainly not going to innovate, whether you think fossil fuels are running out or not.
Let's take a question and that's going to kind of roll into our second question, which is about education. And this is the one that I'm going to have to summarize, but there are, there are kind of two different prongs to this. One is about the method of education specifically about whether classical education is kind of, is it, or is it a kind of panacea? So we want to define it. We also want to understand what its relationship is to other, let's say methods or or forms of education, particularly in parochial schools. The emails are largely about a, a parochial, a Lutheran parochial school. But I think if you're, if you're Baptist, if you're reformed, if you're Catholic, whatever, this is going to apply. It's about, you know, Christian schools, religious schools. So what kind of method should be pursued there? And then also are those schools, are Christian schools really primarily evangelistic? And how does that relate to people who are sending their children there because they already are Christian and they want their, their children to receive a Christian education there. So we'll take both of those and see how we go and whether we are, uh, Gonna gonna come out the other side. Like, what kind of answer we're gonna get? Because it's it's kind of an interesting. The reason I'm taking these questions is because they're they're both interesting to me, but they're also so common. These are not the only emails we've ever received about the topic, and but this might be the the first time that we've actually answered the questions. So so let's do that. Let's talk about the evangelism and education, or or the Great Commission from the end of Matthew. And schools, we'll take that one first, and then we'll talk about different different methods of education. Because the answer to both questions really has to do with the purpose of education, okay? And the purpose of education for a Christian is going to be the inculcation of the wisdom of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so that's where we start our steps, and then all our other steps are governed by that idea. On the other hand, you could also say that education readies the child for life and especially for a certain kind of life. So, I mean, why are we teaching reading and writing? Well, we're, we're assuming, we're assuming that literacy is, you know, better than illiteracy, right? So, all right, great. Literacy is better than illiteracy. Let's, let's teach them to, to learn how to read and write. Cool. Right. So, when you are shaping education, you're always shaping it with a view to an end. Whether that end is going to be is going to come pretty soon, like then they're going to know how to read and write. So they're in kindergarten or they're in first grade, and now they can read and write. Great. So a certain something has actually been accomplished there. Or the end is really far off, right? We want them to be in heaven. So we want them to know the only true God and to love him and serve him their whole lives. Well, then the education has to be shaped towards an end that is super delayed, right? In the sense that everything in the church is and, and about what the church is doing is very delayed, right? Um, that the return on what you're doing is is heavily and by just by necessity it's delayed. You don't you don't see the end of what you're doing until eternity, okay? When you think about it that way, the idea of using evangelism to accomplish education, it it actually does make some sense, but we're going to have a caveat to that. The sense that it makes is that if you look at this historically, the way that almost every society has been evangelized in a thoroughgoing way 
is through education. And a really clear example of this that you can go to if you want to see this is the use of education in the evangelization of Hawaii. Hawaii was certainly in its ruling class and also by and large among the common people who had under pagan rule, which is obviously Hawaii's historic form of religion, had been very, very, very separate, right? The whole Hawaiian religion centered around what we would call taboos, what's called kapu in Hawaiian. And it was centered entirely around keeping nobles and commoners separate and all kinds of rules about this and all kinds of rules about men eating separately from women and all kinds of stuff, right? Well, how do the missionaries who come there on ships from New England change that in addition to some, some British Anglican missionaries? Well, they, they teach. They teach school. So they offer, first of all, educations that would be valuable to the ruling class, to the ruling class. And those are many of those schools still exist. President Obama went to one of them, the Punahu school. And then they offer other kinds of education, maybe just basic reading and writing, but you're going to learn to read and write using the Bible to the lower classes. So it's entirely evangelistic, right? The idea that that schools are for evangelism is not the absolute craziest thing anyone's ever done, and it's happened over and over and over again. You could talk about Cyril and Methodius evangelizing the Slavs. It, it's been done before. It's not not a horrible idea. It's not a bad idea. And it is a way that the church has seen to come into contact with people and be able to communicate the gospel directly and clearly through what is being taught. Obviously, the end there, not in the long term of going to heaven, but in the short term of baptizing people, of bringing them into church membership, of therefore fostering congregations that come out of people who were educated by Christians, who are now themselves Christians and want to have and, and, and therefore do found congregations. All of that has to be very intentional. A lot of times when Lutheran schools, particularly, I'm not going to talk about Catholic or Reformed, I know less about them. And a lot of other Christians don't even have schools of their own. But when a lot of Lutheran schools are talking about being evangelistic, they're being highly unintentional about how school attendance relates to church membership. And the goal here is that school attendance for anybody is pointed at church membership. There's no other reason for the church specifically to run a school other than that the people in the school either are or are becoming or will become church members. That requires a lot of intentionality. That requires checking off. That also requires the school and the church not to have different priorities and therefore not also to have different actions, but that everything is aligned with getting people baptized, taught, being members of the body of Christ. A lot of times when schools, Christian schools of all kinds, are, are talking about how their school is evangelistic, they're doing it kind of after the fact because the bills are being paid by people who are not Christians because they want, and this is the way that Christian schools look to a lot of non-Christians, certainly in the United States today, they look like better behaved or more respectable or whatever, you know, it's better than public school. That's why my kid goes there. It's fine if that's what they're looking for to start with. Like, 
they're not going to have a less limited perspective than that. What's not fine is if they are not being pushed by what their children are being taught, by what they're being taught, by the engagement from the minister with them, by whoever is responsible for making that school an instrument of evangelization. The church also has to understand that if they're going to send their own children who are already members of the body of Christ to such a school, that's not the same thing as sending them to a school where everybody's already a member of the body of Christ. So if you're going to have a school that has a missionary purpose, it's going to be a different school than the kind of school that Lutherans traditionally had. Okay. Lutherans traditionally had schools because they had Lutheran kids. They relatively rarely had schools because somebody else who wasn't already a Lutheran had kids. So the reason that I used Hawaii as an example, or the two apostles to the Slavs as an example, is because Lutherans don't have a lot of experience with this. And the prior to maybe the last 30 years, the the idea that you're going to have a school for an evangelistic purpose, and therefore that the kids who are in that school who are already Lutherans need to think of themselves almost like missionary kids. You have to be clear that that's what that's actually what's being asked. It's not everybody's Lutheran, everybody already agrees, everybody's like this, right? That we historically had, where we had all these schools, they were usually very small. Um, because that was a lot easier to do before, you know, a widespread accreditation of everything and, and regulation of everything. They were very small, one room schools, very often taught by the pastor. So the, the pastor was essentially a pastor and a school teacher. And then maybe if the congregation were a little bigger, you'd have a school teacher who's a separate person from the pastor. And then eventually once Lutheran education becomes much more influenced by mainstream ideas, especially after the Second World War consolidation. So we begin to get Lutheran-specific high schools. That's why your, your Lutheran high schools often look <laughs> very, very, very much of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because that's, that's when we started building them as freestanding things. All of that was built for Lutherans, and that's what it was. So... I don't think that was illegitimate. I don't think having an evangelistic school is illegitimate. I think not explaining to ourselves what we're actually doing and what therefore is actually being required of us, that's a really bad idea. But I think that's very often where we are. We have a low degree of intentionality about it. And part of the reason that we might have a lot of folks in our schools who are not Lutherans, which could be great, they could become Lutherans, right? The reason that we do is so that we can pay the bills and but, you know, let, let's be honest, right? And maybe we want to pay the bills because we still wanted to be there, not only for those kids, but also for our own kids. I don't actually think any of that is illegitimate. I think, number one, schooling decisions are always up to the family, okay? And therefore, number two, the traditional idea that everything is going to be solved if we have a school and either everyone goes, so let's put pressure on the family to everyone needs to go all the time or whatever. Or on the other hand, that we're going to have a school that's not just for Lutherans, but it'll be just like it is. 
none of that's good. So, all right, what do you, what do you do on the, on the family level? You have to decide, right. In the same way that the congregational missionaries to Hawaii had to decide, what do I do with my own children who are already Christians? And the answer that they gave is that they would be educated with Hawaiians up to a certain point, And then usually they would be sent away to boarding school. <laughs> okay. So at, at some point they need to begin preparing for something else. So they need to go into a different educational environment. Again, this is up to families, but you have to be intentional about it because if you're not, maybe your kid is fine, you know, telling the other kids in his class why they're wrong about whatever he thinks they're wrong about or, or whatever, or he's not going to do what they want to do, whatever the case may be. Right. Or you have to think about the interactions outside of class, which is a large part of school life, right? Not just the stuff during recess, but also what you get invited to and what your kids participate in and stuff like that. You have to think about, you know, how much do I want to do that? Or do I want to do that at all? Can my kid actually, you know, withstand peer pressure or can he not, or he can in this case, but not in that case, you got to think about that, answer that for yourself and congregations need to respect families willingness or unwillingness to be part of whatever it is that the congregation is providing or a group of congregations is providing educationally on the school's part and therefore on a church school's part intentionality about evangelizing and catechizing everyone not just taking their money but evangelizing and catechizing everyone that's the goal if there's not intentionality about that and we're not constantly checking back on ourselves. How are we doing on that? Is that is that going well? Is it not going well? Is it being communicated? Is it not? Is our school's culture or our school's activities being determined by people who don't have the same commitments that the church does to what Sundays are for, to how people should behave, to how we act when we play sports, all those different things then we need to step back and say, okay, why are we failing to carry out this teaching? Why are we failing to keep control of our own school? And is it just for the sake of money? Because that's crazy, right? There's no reason for this to exist if it's not for the sake of the knowledge of Christ. That's, that's what we're doing this for. We're not doing this to, to make money. We're not doing this to be well-known. We're not doing this to have the best basketball team right? We're doing this so that Christ can be inculcated. So those are things, intentionality is required on both, on both fronts, but because you're, you're dealing with two different realms, the family and the church, and then you add a third, you add school and you and those are all overlapping. We need to understand what our duties are. The family's duty is the same as the church's regarding its children, that it inculcates Christ. If the church wants to engage in evangelization through education, that's fine. That's fine, but it needs to actually be doing that, right? Not just keeping an institution open for its own sake, right? So this is going to pertain also to our answer about different forms of education. The listener brought up the question of classical education and whether that, that would be a solution. You can find different definitions of classical education. Consortium for Classical Lutheran Education has some good definitions and resources about this stuff on their website. Association of Christian Classical Schools, which is a, a group run out of uh, Moscow, Idaho, also has some good definitions. So any definition I'm going to give is going gonna, is gonna to fall short of somebody who's a pro talking about it, but 
essentially in terms of method, it is centering education on what is, you could say classical in the sense of the classical world. You could also say classical in the sense of this is the historic method for most people who are educated. But what it what it is in in a nutshell is teaching Greek and Roman antiquity as the key to understanding the different subjects that you're going to study. So for that reason, for example, the study of Latin, which you might think, why Latin? Why not Spanish or Mandarin for business or something? Why Latin? Because that's going to hold together the not only the the base knowledge concerned with our own civilization which is a melding of classical antiquity and christianity that's our civilization that's that's what was called christendom or that's what underlies what's called the middle ages okay but also because what you can do when you are studying those things is you can look at in classical antiquity not in not in christendom not not quite yet but in classical antiquity, you can look at an entire civilization from start to finish, and you draw a lot of understanding about human beings from knowing all of that from start to finish in its own original language. Okay. A lot of other things get called classical education, especially something called the great books method. If you look that up with a capital G, capital B, you can find out about that that is really sort of a derivative or a modern take on what you need to know. And it doesn't have to do with learning foreign languages, languages foreign to the student anyway. And so what I just gave you as a definition is probably going to be your, your strictest or your clearest definition. The idea a lot of people have the, the listener mentions, this seems like some sort of like trend or something. And it, and it is a trend. It is definitely a trend. People who, you know, you, you can sort of understand why like a Roman Catholic or, or a Lutheran or, you know, a, a confessional Presbyterian would sort of be interested in old things, right? Old methods. And <laughs> our, so much of our theology is in Latin. Like it's, a, it's actually kind of useful, right? <laughs> for certain things, for us, to, for us to learn these languages that have fallen out of favor, right? In, in other forms of schooling. But when we're talking about whether this is, you know, is this a trend? Well, it's so trendy that churches or groups of Christians who have no real relationship to the past in the way that they worship and, and partly in the way that they believe today, right? Your most kind of wild, big box evangelical Christians, they're starting classical academies or they're sending their kids to classical schools and having been on the board of a classical school. It, it is always funny the the difference between what the kid gets in church and then he comes to this classical school and the classical school is like, you know, here's Augustine talking about the city of God. And this is just a completely different approach to understanding Christianity, to how the Bible is being read versus what the kid gets on a, on a Sunday to Sunday basis in his, you know, charismatic, you know, mega church. So it's it's so trendy people who really who really have no particularly organic personal reason to even be interested and don't themselves know latin etc are interested in it that doesn't mean it's wrong it does mean that it's trendy and because it's trendy there are things obviously being said for it that are kind of hard to sustain 
but among them i think is this idea and this is a little this brings up a historical point about methods of education that people need to keep in mind is that when we are setting up the system of parochial schools that the lcms still has right some choices have to be made about what we're going to do because the vision like i said the vision was and and the idea was and and pastors sort of were expected to be either teach school or to support schools because the vision was that we were going to have a school for every single lutheran child and that so, so that would probably at that time in the 19th century that would probably be like one school per congregation generally speaking and particularly in german speaking congregations that was largely true our english speaking congregations were never as into parochial schooling generally as our german speaking ones but the but that vision you know here's a school for every lutheran child that was generally realized okay the question about method was well what do we teach them what are we what are we trying to teach them and in this case you can actually know the answer to that there's a summary of it in thomas korchak's book about the history of lutheran education some of which covers america i'll just provide you with a synopsis of the history here so you don't have to do that is that you have in german a difference between if you're going to get if you're shooting again your your curriculum your education is always shaped by what by what you want the end or the goal what what is the goal and then everything gets shaped in terms of that in german you have this big difference between if your goal is university study or if your goal is either business or like a science or something and then even beyond that whether you are going to go into what we would call a trade either farming or a trade if you're going to go into farming or a trade, something like basic literacy, the catechism, spelling, you know, the these are these are really all you're going to get and and it's really all you need. If you're going to go into business or the sciences, you're going to receive more modern language instruction so that you can talk to people in other countries to do business with them or so that you can read things from other countries in order to take advantage of their scientific discoveries. But you're also going to receive a lot more science instruction. If you are shooting at a university education, then you are going to receive what we now call a classical education. So to be clear, of their three options, only one of those three was what we would now call classical education. Okay. And it's not that the farmer had never heard of the Iliad or something, but no one was expecting him to read that in Greek or no one was expecting for him to read Virgil in Latin. That wasn't, that wasn't the idea. So what did the LCMS build since it had an option in a completely new country that didn't have to be a public school system, didn't necessarily have to provide for every different kind of person? Well, they built something that was sort of a melding of the option for the farmer and the option for the businessman. That's what the parochial school was. It wasn't particularly classical. And you can know that because you can look up if you have German. And there's actually, there's, there's a question I haven't addressed, which is a guy asking about things untranslated because he has time to work on them. 
if that's you and, and you're listening to this, I'll send you an email. But I would say something we're definitely need translated is JCW Lindemann's Evangelical Lutheran School Praxis. I've mentioned it in various venues before, but it's it's a pretty important book. And part of it gives you a curriculum. It was like a handbook to teaching school. The most important thing was discipline. <laughs> and after discipline came curriculum and everything else. But in that handbook, you can see here's what they taught. We also have records of, of other things from other times. Here's what they taught. Here's what they did. And, and it's some melding of what's the, the businessman's school and the farmer's school. It's, it's, not a, it's not a classical education, right? I, I love classical education. I think it's great. It's not a classical education. It's the farmer's school and, and it's the businessman's school mixed together. That would take you up to seventh or eighth grade. Then you're done. In Germany, you could go on to this further scientific schooling or techn technical schooling if you wanted to. That's what you were going to do. Somebody like Nikola Tesla, who is educated in a, in a German language environment, despite being Serbian because he's in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he goes to a technical school, right? So this isn't a commentary on your intelligence or something. This is a commentary on what you're going to do after you're done going to school, right? So if you're going to be a scientist or a businessman, you go to this Realschule is what it's called, a technical school. If you're going to be a farmer at the end of seventh grade, eighth grade, whatever, you're done, right? This, this is where the Lutherans begin to associate being confirmed with being done, right? You're done going to class, right? When you're in eighth grade. So that, that's what we build. We, we don't build a classical education system except for the groups of schools that were mainly boarding schools, unless you lived in that city, mainly boarding schools throughout the country that would feed you into the eventually Concordia Seminary St. Louis. Those were highly classical. Those were extremely rigorous, but those were obviously only for people who were going to be pastors, right? Your teacher who, who even goes to college in an American sense and then comes from Concordia Seward or the Addison Teachers Seminary, now called Concordia Chicago, that is almost always going to be a guy, right? That guy doesn't necessarily know Latin. I mean, he might, but it's not his job to teach it really necessarily, certainly not to the whole class. So when we're talking about classical education, it is, it has to be remembered. It, it was never really given to everybody. And there are, there are instances where there's wider distribution of certain things that would go by the name of classical education. Those, those, even those are, are never for everybody. So for example, you have pretty much universal literacy in New England from colonial times. It's a highly educated people. They talk a lot and they debate a lot. And the New England town meeting relies on your ability to keep complex issues in your head and, and say something coherent. Um, otherwise, such meetings are completely pointless, right? Even with widespread distribution and the expectation of near universal literacy, what we would call a classical education is not necessarily on the table. What I would say, and what you find in common between, say, the Lutheran parochial school system or early New England or something, is that widespread command of the Bible and whatever that tradition's catechism is, that was expected of everybody. 
that was expected of everybody. So those are those are commonalities. I would say the the commonalities, whatever the system was, were discipline, absolutely requisite. Can't get anything done unless there's discipline. So if the kid can't basically shut up and listen, no learning is going to be possible. Fair, very rigorous discipline, certainly compared to today, absolutely requisite. Knowledge of the Bible, knowledge of that church's traditions, whether we're talking about catechisms or liturgies or hymnody or whatever, those are common. Everything else is shaped by, well, is my kid going to read ancient texts and talk for a living like a pastor, or is he going to be a farmer, right? Is my kid going to be really good, you know, getting houses built, or is he going to be really good actually swinging the hammer himself? So is he going to manage people or is he going? And, and to us, I think the reason that that seems weird or the reason that we might place such faith in a certain method of education like people do, most people do with public school, partly because it's free, so or it feels free, or the way, yeah, people are going to exaggerate the benefits of a particular method. They're going to exaggerate classical education like they exaggerated the new math or they exaggerate lots of things because what they're doing is they're, it's really easy in the present to say, my kid is getting all this great stuff and it's going to fix everything. It's a lot harder to think, <laughs> how do I figure out and how do we work to figure out what he's actually going to be. And then we can figure out what he needs to study. Because if he's going to be a pastor, guess what? Maybe he doesn't need Calc 2. <laughs> but if he's going to be an engineer, then as soon as he can do Calc, maybe he can do Calc when he's 14, he should try it, right? We don't need to wait until he's a senior to do pre-Calc, right? Whatever the question is. I think a lot of our a lot of our difficulty is sort of like the lack of intentionality when we talk about evangelizing or we talk about what a school is there for is that we lack intentionality when we're thinking about wh what we're actually doing when we educate somebody and what we're doing when we educate somebody is that we are trying to figure out what he needs to be and then tracing a road from today where everything's pretty easy to see as we look around us to that thing he needs to be that we can't yet see. And that's true whether you're talking about being a disciple of Jesus or you're talking about, well, yeah, he's he's good with languages or whatever. Or he's He likes people or whatever. He should be a pastor, right? And then shape from here to there. We're also really reluctant to do something that people weren't back then, which is to basically steer children into certain kinds of life. And therefore, to train them by steering them to the place that they need to be. Does, did that wind up with probably a few more people who probably shouldn't have been pastors, for example, being steered to be pastors? Of course it did, because anytime people are involved, it's going to be screwed up, right? But what it didn't do was provide tons of people who go through whatever the method is supposed to be. So everybody going to the trades, the trades are where it's at. That's today. Or, you know, 20 years ago in the same circles, everybody go to college, college is where it's at. And now he gets out of trade school or he gets out of college. And we're not talking about the paycheck part. We're talking about the, the soul part. He doesn't know what to do and he doesn't like what he does. He doesn't like what he trained to do. So this is apart from what kind of job he has and how much money he makes. Is he actually 
serving God and his neighbor in what he's doing? And is he doing that well? And was he actually meant to do these things? Well, that's a lot easier to answer if he has been steered toward it and decisions were made relatively early in his life relative to, you know, I'm 30 and I still don't know what I want to do relatively early in his life with his parents' input about what he's going to do. Okay. And then that's going to help steer him towards something that's actually going to be rewarding. I mean, by in, in the way of souls, not just rewarding in the way of, you know, pocketbooks or bank accounts. So we have an issue here where a certain method, classical education has caught on. It's very trendy. It's very much unlike today. It also probably, and this is not necessarily classical, it's just something that people interest, interested in past methods are going to grasp better than a lot of modern education does, you're going to get better discipline. By and large, you're going to get much better discipline with classical education. That doesn't have to do with studying about the Romans. <laughs> that has to do with the instructors understanding that discipline is a historically necessary, clear, dominant part of education and discipline playing almost no role in many other methods by which people prepare to teach children. So of course you're going to get exaggeration about this, but because it's trendy, you know, people are placing a faith in it that, you know, we'll see how this goes and we'll see, we'll see how many people or what percentage of people actually take up this particular method of education. But the idea here that one method is going to provide you with everything that you need, I, I don't, I don't think you can sustain because I would say the fundamentals of education involve discipline and the education of the soul and then the basic things needed for preparation of life and various methods can provide you with that. Various methods can provide you with that. I favor classical education for reasons I think I've talked about in other places. You can go look this up, but it's not, it's not, and it's not meant to be a panacea, right? Something that <laughs> you know, those of you with Greek, something that can heal everything, right? It's not meant to be that. So if, if somebody's trying for it to be that, then they're probably just a little, a little overenthusiastic. That's all. So that's education. Our third question, which I am going to read is not as tightly related to the other two as the last one, although it has something to do with, with analyzing civilizational difficulty. So it comes to us this way. I'll just read it and then respond. Um, greetings, gentlemen. I'm aware that you've answered questions before regarding the Jewish question, capital letters. So he's talking about kind of a long history of discussion, we'll explain. But I wonder if you'd tackle another. Since said question is rather ubiquitous in history, I'll try to be very specific. Since October 7th, many, many more folks are seeing things that quite a few Europeans and even early Americans up to the middle of the 20th century saw. What I'm referring to is behavior and attitudes of organized Jewry. Since October 7th, I have been following pundits and journalists like Judge Napolitano, Scott Ritter, Ray McGovern, John Mearsheimer, Matthew Ho, Alexander Crook, Tony Schaefer, Jeffrey Sachs, Max Blumenthal, and others. And several of these have openly stated that the Israelis control Congress. And my favorite is Colonel Douglas McGregor, and they have all said it on YouTube. Furthermore, to date, it appears that Israel has killed more than 20 times the number of Israelis killed on October 7th. I don't, I don't know about that number. 
because the question is probably a week old and and I haven't looked that that stuff up. But and to date, there seems to be no end to it. My specific question then is, what do you make of organized Jewish power in the United States? Okay, so the question is, let's just say off the bat, it, impossible to answer in a way that will be treated fairly because when you're talking about Jews in the United States or in Israel or anywhere, you have a term that can be used to cover up any criticism of them as a group, as an organized group, even though there are organized things like the American Jewish Congress or the World Zionist Organization, stuff that we mentioned. And you might want to go, if you haven't listened to it, listen to the episode on Zionism, not Christian Zionism, but Zionism after listening to this answer or before or whatever you want to do, if you want to revisit it or listen to it for the first time. And one thing that we mentioned in there were some of these organized groups, which, which is what's called organized Jewry, meaning not just people who are Jewish ethnically or religiously, right? Because you have both those things going on there, ethnically and or religiously, but that they are organized self-consciously as Jews to some end, to protect Jews from defamation. That's the Anti-Defamation League started after the Leo Frank trial in Georgia in the early 20th century, or whether it's to support the state of Israel, which is what the World Zionist Organization exists to do as a sort of Congress of Zionist organizations throughout, throughout the world, really, or the Canadian Jewish Congress or the American Jewish Congress, which will come in and, and if you critique Israel, they will always bring up the claim that this is this is simply anti-Semitic. So it's not that you have a valid critique of their actions, but that you you simply hate them, right? So as you know, on an individual level, it's always difficult to talk to someone or about what to do if they're always going to claim that everything you're saying is is simply personal spite, right? So we'll just we'll just say that off the bat because that's a that's always going to come up where you have a term like anti-semitism or you have a term like racism or something where the group is almost like off limits because any critique that you might have of it not from inside the group and, and sometimes from inside the group as we're going to talk about towards the end of this answer is going to be treated as as unserious simply spiteful simply just hatred right so, you know, that's, let's just leave that not so much as a disclaimer, it's just you have to keep that in mind in answering a question like this. And, and the example out of that list of pundits and journalists that the, that the questioner sent in, out of that group, I really only know two of those names. One is Andrew Napolitano, whom I know from the heyday of paleo-libertarianism, so that <laughs> that's more ancient history than the Roman Empire. We're not going to worry about that today. The name that I really know quite a bit about is John Mearsheimer. And we talked about him on the show when Russia invaded Ukraine, because not only did he predict it, he also understood what would happen. That is that Ukraine would be taken up, but Ukraine would be set aside. And since Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th, Ukraine has been set aside <laughs> in favor of Israel. Okay. So Mearsheimer is what's called, along with Douglas McGregor, whom I know just a little bit about. And I'm just going to leave McGregor there because that's, that's really all I know. Mearsheimer, I know quite a bit about. 
because he is one of the fathers of a school of analyzing relationships between countries, international relations, called realism. And Mearsheimer wrote a book, among other books he's written, he wrote a book years back now, going on two decades, with, I want to say, Stephen Walt, called The Israel Lobby. And this was an analysis by a professor at the University of Chicago. So this is not kind of, you know, stranger corners of YouTube type of stuff, a professor, you know, or not to speak of, you know, video, video platforms that are where you go when you can't be on YouTube anymore. This is a professor at the University of Chicago saying Israel has vastly inordinate control over the United States of America and its actions. And that's bad. Okay. And here's how it operates. So what happened to Mearsheimer? Everywhere that Mearsheimer went, he had to insist that he didn't hate Jewish people. And I mean, the guy had to get tired of it. So here's the issue is that the non-disclaimer disclaimer I just gave you is it's almost impossible to talk about this because all discussion gets reduced to, well, you're just hateful. Well, no, John Mearsheimer doesn't hate Jewish people. He thinks that a foreign country has too much control over the United States of America through people living in the United States who have a greater attachment to that foreign country because of their ethnic and religious attachments than they do to the United States of America. That was the issue. But everywhere he went, and you can find tons of examples on YouTube of him doing book talks about the Israel lobby, everywhere he went, he had to give this long disclaimer, and still people were crazily hostile to him about all of this. Okay. So that's, I mean, I don't know all of these other names in the list that the that the listener sent in, but Mearsheimer, I know, and he was treated atrociously for making fairly easily sustainable, clear points about American foreign policy being captive to a foreign nation. Okay. The difficulty here is that the United States is not set up to handle ethnocentric behavior. So if you are in, and I will periodically make up an ethnicity as it were, although it has definite characteristics, if you know any of us, but I'll make up as it were an ethnicity for the sake of a thought experiment and the rest of this answer, which is I'll talk about Pennsylvanians. Okay. (laughs) And in some ways this actually states are the closest that the U S system comes to handling what we would describe as severe natural partisanship. And I don't, by natural, I don't mean to say it's great. I just mean to say it's going to be there. Okay. Severe natural partisanship could be ethnic, it could be religious, it could be racial. So if we think of ethnicities as kind of subgroups within what is called on a very high level of discussion or distinction between human beings, racial differences, whether you're European or Asian or African or you know Native American or whatever you are, right? But ethnicities are underneath that. So among Europeans are Russians, among Europeans are Dutchmen among Europeans are Frenchmen. And then among Frenchmen are Southern Frenchmen and Northern Frenchmen and Parisians. And right. So you can see human groups can split themselves up however they want. Right. And partisanship could occur along those lines of difference where you're from, how much money you have, how much money your dad had, how much money and land your grandpa had or didn't have, whatever. 
human groups can sit, can split themselves up along almost any lines that they can think of, right? When we're talking about Jews in the United States, you're talking about a line that is both ethnic and religious, but it could be any kind of line. So that's why I can use a hypothetical. I can say Pennsylvanians, right? Because I could say, well, you know, I, I like people from Western Pennsylvania, but Eastern Pennsylvania, now nah, I don't like those people. And I'm from Central Pennsylvania and they think that I don't even own shoes and whatever, right? So you can always split these groups up into smaller groups. And I'm going to talk about how I think that's actually happening among American Jews now. And that's what you see being reflected since October 7th in the United States domestically, okay? But our system of government is not really set up to account for ethnocentrism. A good study in the opposite of this. So if people have severe natural partisanship or what is usually called derisively in the United States, tribalism, but what is called tribalism, say in a society that doesn't really have enough geographic mobility to have these groups mix. So you could still have tribal countries in Africa or the Middle East because people are not, you know, driving and living 300 miles from their parents. So they really do form very local, coherent groups that you could call ethnicities, but are also called tribes. Our, our system of government is not set up to handle that. Okay. And that's partly because our system of government was set up by and for a fairly homogeneous population, not only racially, or, but also even ethnically, and not only ethnically, but also religiously, okay? That when the United States of America is set up, and, and the Founding Fathers do actually make observations like this, that, that we are a, a single people with a single language and a single religion, they don't mean the different Protestant denominations, but they do kind of mean Anglo-Saxon Protestantism. And they don't mean the different accents, which are, of course, different from today's accents, but they do mean that basically everybody speaks English. And one way that you can see that this actually occurs or is the case is that if you have Americans who are not English, but old enough in their being in America to have been here from back then, they you probably don't even think of them as anything other than Anglo-Saxon, as it were. And so two good examples, as far as genealogy goes here, would be the Rockefeller family. It's actually a German name. That's a Palatine German name. They came to America with the first Palatine immigration in 1710 and settled in upstate New York. And the Rockefellers, American as that is, and American as that story is, and even central to American history as the Rockefellers became, they're not actually English, but they were Anglicized. Similar thing, different family, the Roosevelt family, going all the way back to when Teddy and FDR had a common ancestor, a common, I want to say great, great, great grandfather, if I remember correctly. They're Dutch, they speak Dutch, but they become totally Anglicized, even to the extent that in FDR's line, they were Episcopalians by his lifetime. So you're dealing with a people who are pretty homogeneous, right? And they set up a system of government that has checks and balances on power because it is making certain assertions about what human beings are prone to do. Yes, that's a universal condition, but they just don't even account, really. They account for the idea that people who live in different places 
would have different interests, right? So the Senate represents states in a way that the House represents sheer population. But they don't account for, well, but what if people from Georgia just speak a completely different language than people from New Hampshire? They don't account for that. A couple good contrasts, one is an older one, one is a newer one. An older one is Canada actually accounting for people just not even speaking the same language. So all the differences that come from not even speaking the same language, Canadians take into account in their political formation, in their history, and then also in their various constitutional developments. America never really even considers it possible. It's not like we bring in New Mexico after after defeating Mexico and we say, um, you guys just keep speaking Spanish. Like, that's cool. You'll all speak Spanish. If anyone moves here, he probably needs to learn how to speak Spanish. We don't do that. We might sort of try to be bilingual, but we don't try that hard. <laughs> right? We don't, we don't set up the idea that we're going to have ongoing, completely different, also completely understandable and natural differences. The modern example, and this is the one that is probably most pertinent to talking about attachment to a foreign power is the modern example of Singapore. It's a small city state in Southeast Asia. When they come into being after Britain stops governing them, they have stark ethnic and also religious differences between Indians, Malays, and Chinese. And what they do is they apportion essentially everything in their life publicly around the fact that they are just different from each other and they're going to stay different. They're not going to form a single people in time, a Singaporean who would have those three different kinds of ancestry. They're not going to speak a common language. So everything is apportioned and what is permitted to be talked about in public is going to revolve around not upsetting the balance between those groups in order to keep the peace. Basically that's the idea. Okay. So this is what we're not really talking about here. And what the question is not about, does a group of people who are like each other prefer each other along whatever lines of division you could think of human groups fitting into, whether the, the region of a state that you're from, like I mentioned earlier, or your ethnicity on a longer historical timeline or your religion or whatever. Historically, that would be covered by the idea of freedom of association. And a lot of groups still have that. They can tell everyone else to leave if they want to. Okay. The issue, therefore, isn't the existence of an ethnicity or a religion specifically for political purposes. The issue is whether that ethnic attachment or that religious attachment or that whatever kind of attachment is actually going to harm a larger group that we all have to be part of in the case of the United States of America. And something that I think Singapore kind of understood that we really don't, <laughs> partly because we have this idea of freedom of speech, which for a lot of people just involves being rude all the time, is that when you are part of a group that is not like you, one of probably the worst things you could do would be to abuse other groups you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of in an ongoing way that makes the larger group unstable. So this is something where we can use, we can use Pennsylvanians as a hypothetical. If I want to stand up and, and every time I talk about 
where I grew up or where you grew up that's a different place, I could point out the superiority of my group to yours. Or I could point out how my group has achieved so much and 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 what has your group achieved? Now, this is funny in the case of Pennsylvanians because despite being around since the beginning, we've produced a single pretty undistinguished, maybe even atrocious president, right? So this would be ironic in our case, but you know, we could go for it, right? The issue in doing so would be that that would just exacerbate tensions we're going to have. I'm going to be from there and you're going to be from a different place. And there's kind of nothing we can do about that. If we're going to focus on that relentlessly, now we're going to have a problem. Focusing on that relentlessly could involve my just insulting you, but it could also involve my acting in a way that's actually detrimental to you, but feels better for the group that I'm part of, ethnic, religious, geographic, whatever the group is. And that idea that I'm going to act for the benefit of somebody else that's outside of us because I like him, because I kind of understand him better than I understand you who actually live inside the same country as I do or whatever. That's the definition of what you get in President Washington's farewell address of entangling alliances. You can go find that and you can see Washington talking about avoiding entangling alliances. You can also see that they are worried about this in early America, and they already had examples among the founders themselves of entanglement, particularly with the French um, sympathies, especially from Jefferson and Franklin for the French time spent living there that a lot of people thought, and particularly the people called the Federalists thought, made them far too beholden to the French when making decisions. And this was a bad thing. Right. This is also part of the reason that what you get under the early Republic already in 1790 is pretty, pretty strict immigration control. Because the idea is if we bring in tons of people who don't share our understanding of things, who haven't gone through the same things, we're going to get into entangling alliances because you can only expect people to love where they came from or where their where their parents were from or whatever in a way that they don't quite love this place that is completely new to them. And I think on a human level, that that kind of makes sense too. So they're trying to avoid entangling alliances. What is somebody like John Mearsheimer talking about? He's saying precisely, we have an extremely entangled alliance. Now that has to do with a couple of things. And here's where I'm going to go into kind of Jewish history in order to understand these things is that this is not a constant throughout either American history or Jewish history specifically in America, right? American Jewish history does not have a consistent approach to these things. This has changed over time. Israel was not always so fervently supported to the extent that as we'll talk about towards the end of this, to the extent that that really if you understand Israeli politics, you actually understand what debates are happening in America and why. Early on in American history, our predominant Jewish, we might say like sub-ethnicity, are the Sephardim, who are largely from Southern Europe and, and Western Asia. And proportionally, they're a very small group. They're very heavily involved in shipping. They're very heavily involved in Newport, Rhode Island, and in New York City in the slave trade, and Charleston, South Carolina. And they, they kind of have a, a small niche and they're a small number of people. And 
to a fairly large degree with no parallel except today, they actually, many of them become Gentiles. I mean, there's kind of no other way to explain it except in almost like New Testament terms. So in the New Testament, they're asking, do Gentiles have to become Jews? In early America, Jews are kind of asking themselves, can we or should we become Gentiles? And, and a fair proportion of them actually do. And so you'll, you'll find some Jewish ancestry in a lot of kind of old American families for that reason, who are, who are otherwise and, and, and appear to be and, and are Gentiles. Uh, the, ones, the ones who don't assimilate hold themselves apart from the group who comes next who are German Jews. And a great read on each of the three groups I'm going to detail here are three different books by a guy named Stephen Birmingham. He was not Jewish. He didn't only write about Jews, but he did write books about each of the three major waves of Jewish immigration to the United States. And those are pretty illuminating. And the the one about the Sephardim called The Grandees is just a really extremely well-written book. He's a great storyteller. So those are kind of fun if you're interested in this topic. The next group who comes, the German Jews, they are much more religiously, <laughs> you might say loose, <laughs> than the Sephardim. So the Sephardim are what would be called in modern terms Orthodox Jews. The German Jews who come in the 19th century, many of them are non-practicing, but the ones that are practicing are, are, are very interested in not being terribly unique in their practice. So they are what are called assimilationist in their thinking about what the synagogue service is like and what they do. And the way to see this is that, especially if you are a Lutheran, listen to this, if you go to an old, old school, you know, kind of non, non wacky, you know, modern abstract art and strain very strange music that sometimes you get with a reform synagogue if you go to kind of an old school established reform or even conservative synagogue you're going to you're going to hear familiar chorale tunes and when there is a a, a service for bar mitzvahs and and bat mitzvahs you're going to recognize certain elements from the rite of confirmation. And, and that's because when German Jews are trying to think about how they need to change in the modern world, they're thinking we should become more, we don't, we don't want to stop being Jewish totally, but we need to become a lot more Gentile. Who are the Gentiles that we know? Oh, they're German Lutherans. <laughs> so the institution that they establish for this is a, a seminary in the Midwest, right? Does stop me if this sounds familiar, called now Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. Those those guys are really uninterested in any kind of international projects for Jews per se. They're, they're very uninterested. They they don't support them. They are going to hold out against the concept of Zionism into the 20th century and even even after by and large even after the establishment of the modern state of israel so strong is the impulse to assimilate not to the extent that their ethnicity goes away or even that their religion goes away but that they are almost you know protestant christian 
people like practically everybody else in you know northern germany or or practically everybody else in 19th century america or whatever right so they're they're very assimilationist the third group is the largest and it's i think it's really the key to understanding american jewish history down to the present day and that that's what's called usually the eastern european jews a sm- a formerly very small subset of those are probably the only jews that you can if you're not if you're not jewish or you haven't lived around jewish people that you would recognize right away as religiously jewish which are the the ultra orthodox right who have very distinctive clothing especially for the men but but also for the women they're the most religious they are compared to the sephardim and german jews or central european jews eastern european jews are extremely unassimilated i mean they're coming often directly from a specific ethnic ghetto somewhere in the russian empire especially within the pale of settlement in what's now poland and ukraine belarus and they're coming directly to a modern american city or to london or to paris and they're also going to supply in time the bulk of activists on the politically active and self-consciously Jewish wings of Jews in America or Jews in Britain. Their history is different from the other two groups, and it's much more hostile to Gentiles. And that goes both ways, (laughs) which is a story that Solzhenitsyn told in a book that I don't think has ever entirely made it in into English, at least, which I believe is called 200 Years Together. And it's a story of interaction between Russians and Jews. And it is a story of, you know, some assimilation, but but mostly hostility. So this is a group with general experience of hostility to non-Jews. Some of it is things done to them. You know, you can only live here, you can't live anywhere else. And some of it is things that they do to the Gentiles and and a certain hostility to Gentiles. So that group is the last, but also the biggest. It's a lot bigger than Sephardim, and it's bigger than the kind of mid-19th century uh, German-Jewish immigration that is composed of like the the folks who own the New York Times. Those are are your mid-19th century German Jews, much bigger, much more important much weightier today in the United States are going to be your Eastern European derived Jews speaking Yiddish, not speaking a, a non-Jewish language, all of that on and on and on. Those folks, all of them, but with the group being predominantly Eastern European in heritage coming to, you know, still, still immigrating as of say World War I, those folks are largely going to be assimilated as kind of another white ethnic group, largely. But they won't, with very few exceptions in the 20th century, become Christians in the, in the way that some Sephardim did earlier in American history. So they're self-consciously Jewish. They will remain self-consciously Jewish even where they leave the practice of their religion. So the vast majority of Jews in America do not practice Judaism in hardly any kind of way. So their identity is very much ethnic. I think that's pretty key for understanding support for Israel. In, in an earlier time when religious practice was greater among American Jews, and, and most American Jews are 
kind of liberal regarding ancient Jewish teaching, they're reform or they're conservative, they're not orthodox. That's changing due to birth rates, as we talked about in the Zionism episode. But those reform and conservative denominations are actually, many of them, particularly the reform, are consciously anti-Messianic. They don't believe in the idea of a Messiah. So they don't believe in the idea of redeeming Israel, like a piece of land with a Messiah on it. They, they don't believe in that. They might be convinced later to support Israel out of, see how this goes, out of a purely ethnic attachment to other Jews, but they have no religious reason for doing so. And they have all kinds of reasons for supporting this country that they've immigrated to and have done and have done very well for themselves. And I mean, both Zionist and anti-Zionist Jews will pretty much always say no country has been better for Jews just to exist on an everyday level than the United States of America. So you can still see debates because of the attachment to these older, you know, these 19th century ideas. We don't need a Messiah. We're, we're modern people. We live in a modern country. That's great. We're doing well here. We like it here. Down to the 40s, 50s, even the 60s, you still don't have thorough support for Zionism among Jewish Americans that you pretty much do today. Therefore, organ Zionist organizations, right? So this is not to speak of the Anti-Defamation League, which is kind of Zionist now, but originally was just kind of a to, to defend Jewish reputations, right? In the United States, that's what the ADL started out as before, <laughs> long before it had a problem with Musk. But they're not going to support Zionism. They're not going to particularly entangle us in any alliances because they actually have a religious reason not to do so. As that declines, as religious practice in American Judaism becomes overwhelmingly orthodox as it is today, I mean, practice, not hypothetical attachment, actual practice becomes overwhelmingly orthodox, becomes either ultra orthodox with a messianic tinge or it's modern orthodox, that's that's Ben Shapiro, that's the example kind of most people would know, which is going to be supportive of the state of Israel. Now you have both an ethnic and a religious reason to support this foreign country. Okay, so that's that's the shift in opinion about Israel among American Jews. The exceptions to that are going to be secular left-wing Jews who actually believe in not being particularly ethnically attached and therefore believe that Israel is unjust or it's a colonial power or it's a settler colonial power or something that can actually have sort of standard leftist attitudes. The differences between those two groups are essentially the differences between on the right wing in Israel, the Likud party, and on the left wing, the labor party historically in Israel, although that, that left has fragmented in Israel. What you're getting in the modern United States is not, therefore, a debate about whether the United States should be particularly even interested in, let alone attached to, any particular side in a fight between Palestinians and Israelis. That's not up for debate because we don't have a Palestinian diaspora of the size or success and therefore spending power, buying power, political power that our Jewish population is and has. So we're getting an intra-Jewish debate in the United States that 
mirrors the debate between the right wing and the left wing in Israel, which is not a debate about whether Israel should exist or something like that, that we would probably get if we were, if our Palestinian population were as large and influential as our Jewish population. Instead, we're getting a, a debate that that Jews are having not only in the United States, but also in Israel, right? So that's that's why we have what we have, because that any idea of assimilation to the broader American population is is not on the table, is is gone to some degree ethnically, definitely religiously. So you have a people apart who call themselves, and this this term originated actually in German-speaking Jewish groups, but it's it's also used in English-speaking groups, and I, I've seen it in various places. They think of themselves very often, Jews in Western countries, as, quote, outsiders within, meaning they're here, they speak the language, but they're never really going to belong. That's the idea. So if they're having a debate among themselves, it should be no surprise that their debate is not really in the same political terms or on the same political spectrum that you would find in the United States about federal power versus state power or something. It's ethnically specific and ethnocentric. Canada actually has a similar dynamic. I mentioned the Canadian Jewish Congress, but the thing that has come up recently in the news with Canada is all kinds of shady doings by, about, and for Indians in Canada and Canadians in India and the respective security services of those countries, it's all kind of the same issue, is that if you have a system that is not set up to deal with severe, ongoing, partisan difference between people, whether along ethnic lines or racial lines or religious lines or caste lines, when somebody behaves in accord with partisanship that's ethnic or religious or whatever, it's kind of like, well, who's going to stop him, right? <laughs> so this this is not, it's not really a new issue. It's just kind of, it's very specific to Israel now because of the nature of Jewish Americans having resolved kind of not to become Christian necessarily and so kind of meld in most but also having now decided that they don't have a problem with Zionism, which in the past they did. So the existence and the, the, the reality of Israel is totally unquestioned. And so now we're having the same kind of debates along the same terms that Israel does, right? Which was, this is also even reflected downstream from specifics to Israel and the reactions on Ivy League campuses to calling for Israel's destruction or, or whatever, that's read as beyond the pale. But if you listen to, you know, on the one hand, a, a Jewish Ivy League president, and on the other hand, Bill Ackman, who is a famous investor and, and, and also Jewish, what you can hear is respectively from Ackman, the Likud position, and from the president, the labor position in Israeli political terms. I think the the longer the longer term issue here is that it's kind of a measure of our own internal instability that we are just now being pulled in ethnocentric specific directions. This isn't the first time, okay? I would actually say that 
geographic division is really important for why we get into both world wars. It's just that if we keep going this way, it's going to be hard to hold a country together unless we all like become the same ethnicity and the same religion or something. Because if we're going to have any difference whatsoever, and that difference will always be highlighted, will always be important, and we will align ourselves with other countries for the sake of those differences, then it's, it's really hard to sustain the group we're all supposed to be part of, even though we have differences, right? So if you want to think about it in this way, and this is the thought experiment with which we'll close, let's say, okay, I'm, I'm Pennsylvanian and we'll just ignore the differences between the parts of Pennsylvania for, for the sake of discussion. And somewhere in South America, there's a country called New Pennsylvania, or maybe we'll call it Novel, Nova Pennsylvania, whatever. Sounds cool, right? And down there, people have pork and sauerkraut on New Year's, just like you're supposed to in Pennsylvania. And they have a new Pennsylvania, they have a new Pittsburgh Steelers team that I can cheer for. And people sound the same that I do. And they have the same mix of religious options that exist in Pennsylvania. Okay, cool. I mean, is anybody going to be surprised if I'm sympathetic to this country, Nova Pennsylvania? I don't think anybody is. Okay. The issue is if I have some kind of if I'm a political decision maker, if I'm a famous investor, if I'm an Ivy League president, and everything I'm doing is not for the benefit of anyone in Ohio or Tennessee or Utah or Colorado or California, everything I do is either for Pennsylvania or Nova Pennsylvania. That's it, right? I don't think about anything else. I don't care about anything else. Would anyone be surprised if this is like a problem for everyone else in the country I'm actually in, in the country that Pennsylvania is actually in, right? So this issue of entangling alliances is something that I think, and I'm answering this kind of on a, on a political level, because I think the question was on a political level. Spiritually, this is a little bit deeper because for Paul, his people's ongoing existence is an example of the patience of God and a call to them of repentance. That's his great hope that he expresses particularly poignantly in Romans 9 and in Romans 11 with 10 as, as a means to that, right? So in terms of answering, okay, you know, regardless of the ethnicity or sub-ethnicity or whether somebody's Jewish ancestors came to America in 1910 or in 1810, you know, what do we do? I mean, with any, with any human group, if you actually believe they're human and therefore that Christ died for them and that for the sake of Christ, you love them, then you would preach the gospel to them. And I think it's rather reprehensibly obvious that American Christians, as we have kind of, you know, talked up the modern state of Israel, where preaching the gospel is often difficult and dangerous because it's it's thought of as maybe like an ethnic threat to Jews or something, as if somehow Paul was no longer Jewish. I mean, that's, you know, once he believes the gospel, that's silly, but is that American Christians, while we have, you know, talked up how, you know, we respect the Jewish people and blah, 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 we, we have lost a fervor for preaching the gospel to them that we used to have. So if this is something that you're reading about or you're thinking about, I would especially encourage you to further the preaching of the gospel to Jews, both in America and in, and in Israel. And there are Lutherans you can support both in America and in Israel who are doing that very thing. So that's that's my that's my spiritual take. I've given a political answer because it was it was a political question. 
So that's the ultimate answer is the spiritual answer because that's eternity. That's, that's eternal life to know him, right? The political answer is that it's really hard to sustain a state. And to me, this whole question of <laughs> are we, you know, reprising Israeli talking points in the United States of America, it's really hard to sustain a state that doesn't really actually seem very much, at least in public discussion, to exist for its own sake. It exists for the sake of Israel or Canada exists for the sake of, you know, Chinese investors or or for India or whatever, right? Is that that that's a colony. That's not a that's not a state. That's not a government. That's a colony because it's being governed for the benefit of somewhere else. <laughs> this is why we had a revolution to begin with is because we felt that we were being governed for the benefit of, you know, particularly investors and uh, and the public debt of Great Britain and not for our actual own benefit. So you're dealing with a situation where it's kind of, you can see that what happens in entangling alliances is that when you don't benefit from them, you, you actually turn into somebody's colony once again. These are always great questions. I always love them. Uh, you guys are the most interesting people I've ever met, or at least read an email from. So send more in. And this is a brief history of power. You know where to find us, or you certainly wouldn't be here. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider? One that values life no matter the stage and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct eCare can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.